What's most important to you when it comes to choosing your financial advisor? Someone who's aligned with your biblical values. How about someone who will take the time to explain your options? Certified Kingdom Advisors are professionals who meet high standards in competence and integrity and have been trained to offer biblical financial advice. To find a Certified Kingdom Advisor in your area, visit faithfi.com and click Find a CKA. Happy Valentine's Day! Are you celebrating by giving flowers, cards, or candy to loved ones? Hi, I'm Rob West. Expressing your feelings on Valentine's Day is a great tradition, but it's only one day a year. Today, I'll share things you should do all year round to ensure your Valentine's Day is a happy one. Then it's on to your calls at 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. This is Faith and Finance biblical wisdom for your financial journey. Okay, this is a show about biblical money management, and that's always our focus. Uh, Today, we'll look at it from the perspective of couples, primarily married couples, but I suppose some of this could apply to any relationship you have with others. Now, money is always cited as one of the top reasons marriages fail. So knowing how to handle money within that relationship is key to preventing finances from harming your marriage. Put another way, wise money management contributes a great deal to the health of a marriage. So there are four things you should always do, according to Faith and Finance contributor Art Rayner. First is to always act with complete transparency about your finances. Secrecy destroys trust, an absolutely essential element in marriage. For example, if you open a credit card account without your spouse's knowledge, you're destroying trust and potentially putting your marriage at risk. That secret account also becomes a temptation to run up debt, which just compounds the problem when your spouse inevitably finds out. You might call that financial infidelity. The solution is simple. Never do anything in secrecy. Strive for open and honest communication about money as you would in any area of your marriage. Unless both spouses know everything that's going on with your finances, you can't work together to solve problems and achieve your goals. The next way to have a happy and healthy marriage is to have a financial plan. If you haven't already done so, sit down with your spouse and put together a plan for managing money to achieve your goals. But just having a plan isn't enough. You have to stick to it. If you deviate from it without your spouse's knowledge and approval, it'll cause problems in your marriage. That relates back to transparency. Sticking to your agreed-upon financial plan shows respect for your spouse. That special person you vowed to share everything with will feel more connected with you when you always act to preserve the financial health of your marriage. Make sure any departure from your financial plan has the full knowledge and approval of your spouse. It's okay to make changes. Everyone has to occasionally, but keep it above board. The third way to ensure a happy marriage is to always put your spouse first, not your parents. Parents are, of course, a great source of wisdom and advice, but there's a limit. Taking the counsel of your parents about money or anything else above that of your spouse will begin to crack the foundation of your marriage. 
this may be more common than you think, so it's no surprise that the Bible addresses the potential problem head on. Genesis 2.24 reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And of course, wives should hold fast to their husbands as well. Now, the last way to keep your marriage happy may be even more difficult, and that's putting your spouse above even your children. You both love your kids, and maybe you think you would do anything for them, but don't. It's a tough one to swallow, but your first commitment is always to your spouse. Don't put your kids' wants over the counsel of your spouse. It's more important to keep your marriage healthy and strong. Also, in many cases, continuing to help your adult children when they make bad financial decisions means they're more likely to keep making them. They won't become financially independent. They won't learn to save and spend money wisely. They won't learn that to get something, you have to earn it. The earlier you train your children to manage money wisely, the faster they'll learn, and it eliminates a potential huge conflict down the road with your spouse. God's Word addresses this, too. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Remember that you're helping your kids by saying no at times when they tend to repeat the same mistake again and again. So those are four ways you can maintain a happy marriage and ensure that your Valentine's Day will always be happy as well. By the way, we always encourage you to have a monthly money date, a time for you to communicate and make course corrections, not finger point as it relates to your money decisions. Perhaps you can add that this year moving forward. I think it'll make a huge difference. All right, your calls are next, 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. We'll be right back. If you enjoy this radio program, you're going to love all of the many different resources waiting for you at faithfi.com. You'll find more powerful wisdom, podcasts, articles, videos, and more from partners like the National Christian Foundation, Sound Mind Investing, and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Connect with the community of thousands of Christians striving to be good and faithful stewards and check out all of the free biblical financial advice at faithfi.com. Hey, Greg, I need some advice. Oh, what's up? I'm really struggling with finding ways to cut back. With costs going up, especially in healthcare, what do you guys do? Oh, uh, we use CHM, Christian Healthcare Ministries. It's a health cost sharing ministry that's been sharing members' eligible medical bills for over 40 years. Sure helped us stick to our budget. Hmm. Uh, here's the website chministries.org. C-A-C-H-Ministries.org. Welcome back to Faith and Finance. I'm Rob West. We've got some lines open today for your calls and questions on anything financial. We'll help you apply biblical wisdom to the decisions and choices you're making. 800-525-7000 to Orland Park. Uh, Tim, thank you for calling. Go right ahead. Uh, yes, hi, Rob. Uh, question about Social Security. My wife is 67. She's full, uh, taking uh, a full her full payment at twelve hundred a month. I'm sixty three, currently working. Uh, if I were to wait till my full term, which would be at sixty six and ten months, 
I'd be getting 3400 So if she were to claim spousal at that point, I believe she'd be getting a nice bump up in uh, from 1200 to 1700 But my question is, um, does she have to wait until I start collecting Social Security before she could claim spousal? Yes. The answer is uh, she does have to wait until you begin taking Social Security benefits before she can file for a spousal benefit. Now, what will often happen is exactly what is going on here. Your wife will take her benefit in this case because she's older and enjoy that. Let your benefit continue to grow as you wait to take it, hopefully close to full retirement age. And then she'll have the choice at that point to take either her spousal benefit, which is up to 50% of your benefit, or continue to take her own benefit based on her own work record. And she'll be able to take whichever benefit is higher. But she won't have the option of of the spousal benefit until you start taking your own benefits. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes, it does. And then if I were to start taking at 65, say, and and get 3,000 a month, then if she took spousal, it would be 1500 Is that correct? Yeah, up to 50% of yours. And if you take it prior to full retirement age, you're going to reduce that permanent benefit amount uh, you know, by about 8% a year that you take it early. Right, right. Yep, got it. Okay, very good. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate All right. it. All right, Tim. Thanks for calling, sir. Uh, to Florida. Hi, Candace. How can I help you? I wanted to know if what your thoughts were. So my husband and I currently own, and we have about 13 years left on our mortgage. It's a three-bedroom. My parents could potentially be moving with us, so we wanted to know if it made sense to add an additional room, like renovate, or try to um, purchase somewhere else. That was a little bigger. But our mortgage is like $1,500 now, but we didn't want to go significantly more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you owe on the property right now? What do we owe? About 140. Okay. What do you think it's worth today? Uh, when we did Zillow, it was like 350. Okay. And what is the rate on that mortgage? 4.2. Yeah. Okay. So obviously that would go up. You'd probably want to do a second mortgage. Good news is you have quite a bit of equity. Question is at this higher rate, when you borrow against it, uh, you know, would you be able to afford what it would cost to actually do the addition? Have you gone through the exercise of getting a, an estimate from a contractor to, you know, that that's really thought well thought out in terms of what it would actually cost you to do this? No, if we want to do like all the renovations we want, we're probably estimating about like 80,000. Okay. Yeah. I think the key is to make sure that that's a good number because, you know, a lot of times we go into it thinking, yeah, we know what this uh, is going to cost. And then it ends up being a whole lot more. Good news is a lot of the supply chain constraints that really, you know, pushed a lot of raw materials up. A lot of that's coming down. So this is a possibility. The challenge with the new house is at that higher rate, uh, if you buy something a little bigger and the the whole mortgage is now at a higher rate, it's going to make the affordability lower. So I think I think the key is perhaps just to step through this logically. Step one is how much do we like our house and do we really want to stay? Do we like the location? Do we like the home? Would we be pricing this home out of the market, meaning versus the rest of the homes in your neighborhood? If it has this $80,000 addition, you know, would, would you be able to recoup that upon the sale? A realtor could help you think about that. That's step number one. Step number two is the affordability. So I'd actually go through the process of getting that contract 
contractor in there to determine what this is really going to cost, not just somebody's back of the envelope, but what would it really cost with the plans and the design and really all the construction and find out what it's really going to cost you and then determine whether you can afford that. And then look for comparable homes that you could all live in if you were to move and then see what that mortgage would look like at the current interest rates. And I think when you get all the data and you think about it from kind of your, uh, you know, from the perspective of, is this where we want to be? I think the answer will become clear to you. Thanks for calling today. I hope that's helpful to you, Candace. God bless you. Uh, to Illinois. Hi, Mary. Thanks for being on the program. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Um, my voice is a little gravelly, so pardon me. I'm just you wondering, when you look at script, you think so? Thank you. When you look at scripture, I'm a little bit concerned. Like I just heard the gentleman say, seek, well, something, but you know what Jesus says? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this other stuff will be provided. And then also, as I read scripture, what about the Macedonia church that gave out of their lack? You know, I mean, they didn't have anything, but they gave anyway. And I'm thinking, are we putting too much, too much on our security, our future security? I'm just wondering about that. Well, it's a great question, uh, Mary, and I'm glad you raised it because we need to keep coming back to this. Uh, you know, we can get, well, here, here's the reality in my experience. We can attempt to redeem greed in the name of the American dream if we're not careful. Uh, the pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a book uh, some time ago called Counterfeit Gods, and he makes the point in there that, you know, as a pastor, he's had just about every sin confessed in his office save one, and that's the the sin of greed. Uh, He says that he doesn't have people coming to him saying, I think I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. And the challenge is that if we get caught up in that, we can miss God's best for us, which I believe is holding what he's given us loosely so we can give it generously. And, you know, we can find ourselves in the comparison trap where we're comparing ourselves to others and trying to keep up with the Joneses. But I think there's something healthy about living in the tension. And here's what I mean by that. It's very biblical for us to save for the future. Proverbs tells us that there's precious treasure and oil in the house of the wise. The foolish man swallows it up. So I think God gives us more than we need today, and if he does, he's given us a surplus, we should save for the future. The question is, how much is enough? And I think we have to each ask that question before the Lord honestly in prayer to say, God, what is right for me in terms of my lifestyle, but also my accumulation? And what might I be missing today that you want me to do with your money to help somebody in need in my local church, on my path, in my community, in my neighborhood, or a ministry, you know, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, halfway across the globe? What might I be missing today that I should be focused on because I'm living a consumptive lifestyle? And we've got to wrestle through that. And here's the reality, at least this has been my experience, is that the process of working through that is one of the ways that God grows us up spiritually, because as we live in that tension, I think he can teach us a lot in the process. Uh, Give me your thoughts, though. Well, I don't know. I think, I I just think, I'm sorry, I was born and raised Catholic, and I, I don't mean to bring that in. But I hear, um, oh, I heard, oh, was I can't remember, but they were talking about 
Um, Let's do this. I, I hate to interrupt you. I've got to take a quick break. If you don't mind holding the line, I'd love to hear what you have to say and get your reaction to that. We're talking to Mary in Illinois. This is Faith and Finance. We'll be right back. Stay with us. At Faith and Finance, we're on a mission to educate, equip, and connect you and many others with the powerful financial answers found in God's Word. We're working to meet people right where they are through national radio programs, our app, website, and other resources. If you've benefited from this program, would you consider becoming a monthly Faith and Finance patron? Check out all of the benefits of a Faith and Finance patron's membership at faithfi.com and click Give on the homepage. We're grateful for support from Eventide Investments on the Faith and Finance program. Eventide's approach to values-based investing is grounded in the belief that humankind was created in the image of God with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Eventide calls this investing that makes the world rejoice. More information is available at eventideinvestments.com. That's eventideinvestments.com. Welcome back to Faith and Finance. I'm Rob West. Right now we're talking to Mary in Illinois. Just before the break, she was really talking about the passage we read in 2 Corinthians 8 when uh, the account of Paul as he was encountering the Macedonians and out of their incredible gratitude to the believers in Jerusalem who had brought the gospel to them, they were eager to help. And so they gave as they were able, but then they went beyond that and gave more than they were able. Uh, and we see this incredible demonstration of giving out of their poverty. And we see God really multiplying their gifts and just some incredible things happening. And you're pointing us back to that passage, Mary, and saying perhaps we don't talk about that aspect of our financial management enough. And you bring up a great point is first and foremost, it's about placing our trust in the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And uh, through him, we've been reconciled to the Father uh, when we place our trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And now we're adopted into his family. And at that point, it's about stewardship. It's about what are we doing with what we've been given, because it all belongs to the Lord. And I think clearly you make a great point that we need to look at not just individual verses in the Bible, but we need to look at the big themes and what was on the heart of God. And clearly in the New Testament, we see that Jesus raises the bar. Uh, You know, it's no longer about the Mosaic law. It's about uh, taking our giving, along with everything else, to a higher level, whole life generosity. He gave his life as a sacrifice for us. Um, So when we talk about money, we should give as we've been blessed. And with that, uh, it shows a demonstration of our trust in God, that his provision is more complete than our own. Uh, It stores up treasures in heaven, the Bible tells us. It changes us. It's a way of molding us and shaping us to be more like Christ, which is our goal, even though uh, in our sinful state, we'll never achieve that until, um, you know, we're in glory. But uh, we should take a portion of what he's entrusted to us, even sacrificially, and give it back. So I appreciate you challenging us with that thought today. And uh, perhaps uh, a good takeaway would be to reread that uh, passage in 2 Corinthians 8 about the Macedonian church. Thank you for your call, Mary. God bless you. Ohio, Lisa, thanks for your patience. Go ahead. Yes, hi, Rob. Um, appreciate uh, your show. Love it. And thanks for taking Thank my call. Absolutely. Um, 
I just had a question. I had read an article where a biweekly payment on your house payment was just as effective as doing a single one-time-a-year payment, and my husband and I have just recently refinanced, and we did find our lender will allow us to do that. So I just, I've never heard that discussed on your show, and I didn't know if you had any pros and cons for that particular action. Yeah, well, the key is when that payment goes in. I mean, if you look at, let's say, take 2023, for example, this calendar year, if you were able to send one full extra monthly payment uh, because you had surplus and sitting in a savings account that you didn't need at the beginning of the year, you're going to come out better in the end just because with amortized interest, now you're no longer paying interest on that principal balance for the rest of the loan because you've paid it off. And so you've reduced the principal balance and therefore you're no longer going to pay interest on that portion that you've paid off. The quicker you can do that, the less interest you will pay. Now, if you're unable to do that, the idea behind the biweekly mortgage payment is you send half of a payment every two weeks. Uh, when you do that, there's 26 two-week periods, which means you end up with 13 full payments over 12 months. And that's one more than you would typically pay when you're just paying monthly because, of course, you'd have 12. And so over the year, you would end up with one extra payment, but you would not be as, as uh, you know, you'd not come out as well because it took you a year to do it versus paying it on the first day. So I think the takeaway is whatever system works for you is the system that's the best because you're going to be able to do it. But all things being equal, if you had the ability to make the payment on the first day of the year, you'd be better served than waiting to do a bi-weekly over 12 months. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Very well, good. Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. But let me just come back to this point, Lisa, is I love this idea of trying to send an extra payment a year. A lot of people don't have an extra full payment just kind of sitting there unless they pull it out of their emergency fund, and I wouldn't do that. So if doing the biweekly payment, a half a payment every two weeks, is going to allow you to actually get it done, then go for it because that's probably going to cut you know five years or more off a 30-year mortgage sending one extra payment a year. Thanks for your call today. Uh, to Princeton, Illinois, Don, you're next on the program. Go ahead. Hi, Rob. Just had a question. Uh, considering putting some savings, some surplus savings, into either an online bank like Ally, where you can get maybe three or more percent interest, uh, versus a CD where the interest rates are not as great and it locks it up for a while and you can't get at it. Uh, don't don't need that money. It's not part of our emergency savings or anything like that. I just wanted your opinion on on the use of an online bank to try to gain a little extra interest. Yeah, I like the online bank. What is the time horizon on this money? What is it earmarked for? Oh, it's it's really just savings that is uh, probably going to end up helping us in retirement. I'm 61 right now, not going to retire for five years or so. Uh, so it's really just going to be able to sit there for a while. Yeah. What about getting it into a Roth IRA and investing it? Uh, well, that's a possibility if that's a, a better way to do it. With the stock market lately, I was trying to go with something that might be more secure and uh, yeah. sort of as a, a base for everything else. 
Sure. And I can certainly appreciate that. I mean, you'd want as a part of your overall asset mix, you know, part of that from stocks, bonds, and cash, the cash portion, you'd probably want when you're in retirement, six to 12 months liquid. Um, and if this was a part of that, then you wouldn't want to lock it up. I'd use the CD, or excuse me, the savings account. If you had, let's say, a, a one to five year time horizon on it, that's where a CD could work. Although I'd probably stay 18 months or less and look at maybe a four and a half percent uh interest rate on that cd but if it is money that has a 10-year time horizon certainly more than five uh, i'd probably look at putting this in an ira a roth and letting it grow over the next decade here's the thing we always love to buy things that are on sale except when it comes to the stock market for some reason and i'm not picking on you i'm talking to myself as well you know that you'd be dollar cost averaging into the market while things are down and even though it could go down a little further depending on what happens with the recession this year if you look out 10 years, I think you're in pretty good shape and you could get some long-term appreciation on this, have a little bit more in retirement and offset inflation. Well, that's all our time for today. But before we go, I want to say thanks for spending time with us today. Thanks for your calls. Thank you for listening. And Thanks for being a faithful supporter of this ministry. You know, beyond the broadcast, we have an entire team working each day to produce tools and content to help you become a better biblical money manager. And none of that work would be possible without your financial support. We offer a lot of it for free, and that's only because of the generous gifts from listeners like you. If you're not yet one of our financial partners but would like to be, would you visit our new website, faithfi.com? That's faithfi.com. Then click the Give button to sign up, and we'd certainly be grateful. In the meantime, please set a reminder on your phone and make plans to join us again next time. I'll be here, and I hope you will be too, for the next edition of Faith and Finance. We'll see you then. Faith and Finance is provided by FaithFi and listeners like you. 